Well, it's good to see you all. Thank you so much for that good um, praise and worship time. Such a blessing to have uh, good God-glorifying music to bring us to the time of uh, getting into the Word. All right, so let's go to, let's turn to John chapter 4. We're going to finish this uh, story of the woman at the well, city of, of Sychar in Samaria. Beginning at verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Opportunities are rare commodities. And many times... When opportunities come, we fail to seize them, such is the case here. During the first three days of July 1863, amid America's civil war, the armies of the North and the South clashed on the fields of Gettysburg. For the first three days of the battle, fighting was inconclusive. But then the tide began to turn against General Lee and the Confederate forces. The northern troops under General G.G. Meade were winning. Lee began to retreat southward on the night of July 4th, while storm clouds drenched the eastern coast with rain. When Lee reached the Potomac, he found that the river was swollen with rain And he could not cross it. Behind him was the victorious Union Army. Before him was the river. He was trapped. Here was a great opportunity for General Meade. Meade could have attacked immediately, destroying Lee's army and in effect ending the Civil War. President Lincoln had actually ordered him to attack. However, instead of attacking, Meade delayed. He held a council and then delayed again. 
Eventually, the water of the river receded and Lee escaped over the Potomac. From the ground which he was able to extend, from that ground he was able to extend the war for two more years. Meade never again regained his lost opportunity. And it was General Grant that Lee eventually surrendered to on April 9, 1865. Here we have in John chapter 4 a great opportunity. A great opportunity for the people of Samaria and a great opportunity for the people that were with Jesus, the disciples. The Samaritan woman, having received full pardon from her of her sins, ran hastily back to town to tell the people what had happened to her and about the man that knew her deepest inner secrets. While she was proclaiming her good news, we see another part of the story unfold. It is the story of the disciples and their short-sightedness and their preoccupation with physical things rather than spiritual things. It seems their minds were more preoccupied with their hunger than with the harvest. Someone had said, the disciples have returned with the burgers and fries and they're getting cold. And that's pretty much how they felt. Jesus said to them, don't you say and there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? In other words, you're, look, you're looking at the fields and you're saying it's not time for a harvest. It's, let's wait four months. He says, I tell you to lift up your eyes. There is a harvest now. They were all tired. They were hot. They were hungry. But Jesus was not concerned about physical food. His heart was far away with the woman that he had just saved from her sins. John Phillips writes, he forgot his physical hunger in his hunger to reach a lost world. The disciples were obviously oblivious to the spiritual need that existed in the world at this point. And it was vital that they get a vision that only Jesus was capable of seeing heretofore. There are those who believe that this section is out of place. These verses, uh, beginning at verse 35 uh, through verses 38, that they're out of place. But it seems to fit the scene because of what Jesus had just begun to do with this woman and the Samaritan harvest that would follow her. The disciples as good Jews, had no room for Samaritans. They were a half-breed people who didn't live or think or act like Jews. And so the Jews wrote them off. How many people do we just write off? 
because they're, they live a certain way, because they look a certain way, because they act certain ways, we just write them off. They're different than we are. They're not like us. Well, if you want to get really personal about it, who is like us? We're all different. In Jesus' first words to the insensitive disciples, there are those words to hear of challenge to change how they view people. He's challenging their hearts on how they actually look at people. This was most likely in December, making it four months before the spring harvest in April. They would plant their wheat or their corn in December, and by April it would be ready for harvest. A little different than our uh, geography. We can't plant until May, and then uh, the harvest is late August, early September. Perhaps they were standing aloft a field of wheat or corn, which gave the Lord a perfect opportunity to give them a word picture illustration for them to see what the harvest really looked like. Jesus often used familiar surroundings to speak of the harvest, to illustrate spiritual truths to his disciples. We find in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37, 38, he says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, into his harvest. He used the same illustrations in Matthew 13 verses 3 through 8 and 24 through 29, speaking of the sower who went forth sowing seed and speaking of the wheat and the tares in that same chapter. In Mark chapter 4, he uses the same illustrations to speak of the parable of the growing seed. There is an urgency in the Lord's tone and in his words at this point. It was not yet time for the harvest of grain, but it was time for the harvest of souls. The spiritual fields were ready for the gospel sickle to be thrust in. No doubt pointing to towards Sychar, the town that the woman had come from, and the Samaritan people coming to them, he makes this declaration. Look. He must have pointed to them. Look. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Why would he say that? The word look gives us the idea that he is teaching them something. And in essence, he is saying to them, pay attention to the harvest that is right in front of you. Don't look at the fields where the corn or the wheat 
have grown. Look at the other harvest. No doubt, the light-colored clothing of the people coming from Sychar would have silhouetted against the green backdrop of the newly planted and sprouting wheat fields or cornfields. And you could easily see the people coming across those fields. There was no need to wait for the fields. Jesus was talking about to give any sign of ripening. They were already ripe. They were already ready for harvest. This is because Jesus knew the hearts of people. He knew those who were ready for salvation. The woman was an example of that. And he proved his deity in that. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I remember when I worked for the Navy, there was a fellow by the name of Gary Hohen. I was a little bit scared of Gary because he he came to work every day on a big chopped Harley Davidson. His hair was long. He had a great, great big beard that he would part in the middle right here in the two places. He had tattoos all over him. And he acted like he was a part of the Hell's Angels or something. And one day the boss man put me and Gary Hohen in a little boat to go out and paint water markings on the ships. Just me and Gary. I was a bit intimidated. So we got on the we got out on this little boat and I saw a completely different Gary Hohen. Got to talking to him about the Lord. Uh, come to find out his daddy was a preacher. He was not definitely not a Christian. But he was soft. He wasn't a hard shell like I thought he was. He wasn't a a mean individual, although he acted like it when he was around the other guys. But But in that boat, the Lord did a little bit of softening in Gary's heart. I don't know whatever happened to him. He didn't become a Christian when I was there. But I pray that the Lord used that time somebody else come along to water and the Lord give the increase. I'm just saying to you that we cannot look at the outward appearance of people and write them off. They're too far gone. Nobody like them gets saved. Oh, and there are thousands of illustrations that could be used at this point. I remember Ray Comfort, watching a video of Ray Comfort at my, at, uh, at the beach in California, witnessing to people, and there was a guy there arguing with him, a mean-looking guy. And uh, then in another video, a month or so later, here's this same guy holding a Bible. And he's now witnessing like, like uh, Ray Comfort had before. 
The guy got saved. He was a part of a gang. And he ended up getting saved. You just can't write people off. I, the Lord, search the heart. Jeremiah 17. In verse 35, we see another word that Jesus uses. Not only is he, does, does he say, look, which gives the idea that he's going to teach them something. But notice he says, look and see. It has a different, this word has a different aspect of looking. The word see means to observe, to be a spectator, to view with a fixed focus. He wants them to fix their focus on people and their need for salvation, regardless of who they are or what they're like or what their nationality is or what language they speak or what their religion is. He wants them to focus on people. Up to this time, they had only thought with prejudice and bigotry. And they were more concerned with their stomachs than they were with souls. He is saying, pay attention to God's calling and keep your eyes on the goal. Notice the word already in verse 36. It actually belongs to verse 35. Look at it like that. Do not say there are four months and then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest already. Makes more sense, doesn't it? They're already ready. Their part and ours in the harvest will not go unrewarded this is what he means when he says in verse 36 the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together so what are the wages that he's talking about the wages that we receive in this life now we'll receive rewards in heaven When we're there. But in this life. The wages that we receive. Is the reward. Is the joy that happens. When one sinner is forgiven. And becomes a part of the family of God. That's the reward. If there is rejoicing among the angels. When people are saved then surely those who have experienced salvation find great joy in the salvation of others. Is that not true? Do we not rejoice when we hear that someone has become a believer? Is there not a sense of joy that that overwhelms us and floods us when we know someone has been saved, maybe because we testified to them or because uh, they we brought them to, a, to church with us or because we've witnessed to them or lived before them in such a way. There's rejoicing when this happens. The work of the gospel is a reward in itself. 
People can be involved in all kinds of pursuits, but that which secures the souls of men for eternity is the greatest endeavor anyone can be involved in. Because it's not a matter of time or space, it's a matter of eternity. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise, Proverbs 6. Now, Jesus says in verse 36 that the sowers and the reapers in God's vineyard receive the same reward. So it really doesn't matter who sows or who reaps. It doesn't matter who waters or who hoes the row. Doesn't matter. Because in God's economy, they both are, they both get the same reward. Now, normally, there is a considerable interval between sowing and reaping. But here, they're together. Sowing and reaping are together. Amos, Amos, the prophet, spoke of this in chapter 9, verse 13. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. So there you get a picture of someone plowing and reaping at the same time. Someone, someone stamping out the juice from the grapes and drinking at the same time. Jesus taught this very concept in Matthew chapter 20. Verses 1 through 16. Peter asked the Lord in chapter 19, verse 27. He says, well then, Lord, what do we get out of this? I mean, we've, we've followed you. You're the Savior. We followed you. What, what are you going to give to us? And he tells them of a new world. And their part in it. And then he makes this statement in verse 30. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. You remember the parable of the vineyard owner who hired people at the beginning of the day to go out into his vineyard. He said, I'll pay you this much. Go out. It was probably a denarius. I'll pay you that much. Go out and work. And throughout the day, others came wanting work. <clears throat> some at noontime, some in, in the middle of the afternoon, and then some in the evening. And every time he said, go out and I'll pay you the same amount. And so when it came time to be paid, they all lined up to receive their wages. The ones who had worked all day saw the ones that had only worked for an hour or two getting paid the same wages, and they objected you're paying them too much they didn't work the whole day but the first will be last and the last first in other words everybody in God's family gets the same thing same rewards So 
how does that happen spiritually? Well, he explains it in Matthew chapter 20, as I just said. And there are two, there are two things that come out of this. First, there are no set seasons for spiritual, for a spiritual harvest. We have set seasons for a physical harvest. We know that because you can't really plant or reap anything when the ground is frozen 30 inches down. So there's a definite time for planting and harvesting. But spiritually, there is no set season. It happens all the time. Some work their whole lives in it. Others only a short time. But both receive the same wages. Number two, when the gospel is proclaimed and people are saved, it brings eternal life and full sonship to the individual who is saved. Jesus says that God's workers bring in a harvest of eternal life. In other words, the harvest are the souls of the people who are saved by by the ministry of the gospel. No physical harvest can make such a claim. Paul spoke of the adoption in Galatians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read those to you. In fact, I'll have you turn to them. Galatians 4. So, get the sequence. There is no special season for the harvest of souls. This happens anytime and all the time. And second, the gospel is proclaimed. It brings eternal life to the individual plus... The inheritance of full sonship. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's where we all were. We were under the curse Of the law. We had broken God's law and we were underneath its judgment. So why did he, why does he say this this way? To redeem those who were under the law so that with the purpose of and the result being that we become, that we receive the adoption as sons. In the Roman world, it was the firstborn son that received all the inheritance of the father's estate. And the firstborn son then took care of the rest of the family. And then his son would receive the fullness of that estate. So it was the firstborn son that received all the inheritance. And this this followed all the way through many cultures, even the English culture, uh, back in the 1700s, 1600s, followed this same rule of law. That it was the firstborn son. This is exactly what Paul is saying here. That we might receive the adoption as firstborn sons. In other words, God adopts us into his family and he gives us all the privileges and all the inheritance of firstborn sons. Every one of us stands in that category. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons, firstborn sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. This was God's will. This was what God, how God designed it. So the sower and the reaper work together and they rejoice together and they can do this because it is only God who receives the credit for the harvest. It doesn't matter who preaches or witnesses. It doesn't matter who waters. Because God is the one that gives the increase and thereby... God gets all the glory and all the credit for it. We get none. We don't, we don't deserve any. We are only doing that which is our duty to do. As His children. In his rebuke to the Corinthians for their division and jealousy, the Apostle Paul writes that they should rejoice together in God's work. 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos? What is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? See, the Lord has an assignment to each one. He sends the people. He sends you to people. He gives to you people that you can give the gospel to. He assigns it. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither is he who plants or he who water anything. See that? It's not us. We're nothing. It's all him. It's all the gospel. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. So in verse 38, he wants to clarify this to his disciples. This is what he says. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Did you ever ever reap anything that somebody else worked for? There are a lot of people doing that nowadays. Benefiting from the work of others. We won't go there. What is he talking about? It could be those instances in, like in Mark 3, excuse me, it could not be. It could not be those instances like in Mark 3, Mark 6, Matthew 9, where he told his disciples to go out into the fields because that hadn't happened yet at this point. So what is the work that they were to enter into for which they had not labored and who are the others? That's the question. That which they had not labored for was the Samaritans that were on their way to see Jesus. They didn't do anything to bring these people to Christ. I'm talking about his disciples. But they would enter into the work that the woman had done. 
in testifying to the Samaritan people, the people at Sychar. They entered into her work and they entered into the work of Christ who had brought the woman to himself. Much work had already been done. And now the disciples were commissioned to join that work and reap the harvest. What a great lesson. We're not in competition with each other. Churches are not in churches that preach the gospel are not in competition with each other. I have no I have no jealousy for any other church. Only this one. We're 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 working that we're doing the same work if we're preaching the same gospel. Now, it's a different story for those who do not preach the gospel or preach a different gospel. That's different altogether. So it says many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him for two days. And many more believed because of his word. There's there's more work being done. Where are the disciples in all this? They're entering into all this work. They're encouraging the people to follow Christ. After he brought them to faith. And now in verse 39, the story of story of Samaria, of Samaria and its people continue. The people of Sychar must have been impressed by what the woman had said about this person with mysterious powers to know and reveal secret parts of people's lives. Wouldn't you want to know that? That's what people claim today. They claim to know things that they could not possibly know. And they make wide Wide predictions that's eventually going to fall on somebody. And then they claim they knew it ahead of time. Hmm, Not so with Jesus. He knew every detail intricately and perfectly. The people were so affected that they said, all right, let's go and see this man who told you all this stuff. We want to see him for ourselves. And so they they start out. Now, we don't know how many there were, but I can imagine that there was a considerable group that went to find Jesus with the woman. Why did they go? It was because of the woman's testimony. May I say to you, outside of the direct preaching of the gospel, Itself, there is no more powerful means of witness to somebody than your own personal testimony. It's the best thing you have. It is the most familiar thing you have. And you can add a little scripture to that and it becomes a powerful tool to preach the gospel to other people. And people can't, they can't, Say it's not true because it's yours. It happened to you. And if they did say it's not true, then they're simply evading the issue. 
We have the greatest method, one of the greatest methods of evangelism here, this woman's testimony. Of course, the preaching of the word is paramount, but a testimony in a person carries objective results of what happened to them. I remember when, after I was saved, the very day after I was saved, I went back to work and, and began to tell people what had happened to me. I knew nothing really about what had happened, but I just told what I knew. And they thought I was crazy. Thought I was a fanatic. In fact, they called me fanatic. I said, well, yeah, I'm a fanatic for Jesus, if that's what you mean. John declares at the conclusion of this gospel that his testimony about Christ's death on the cross was true. It was an eyewitness account. Listen to what he says. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows he's telling the truth that you may believe. That's what John said about himself. Chapter 21. This is disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know his testimony is true because it was John himself. Nobody could say, John, you didn't see that because he had seen it. Well, they might could say it, but they certainly couldn't prove it, disprove it. Now, there are several places in Scripture that speaks of the power and, of, and validation of one's testimony. 2 Thessalonians 1.10, when, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled among by all who believe, because our testimony to you was believed. Paul says, that's, that's why you're saved. You believed our testimony. Paul used his testimony over and over again in Acts. It's one of the most powerful tools you have. Revelation 6 verse 9. He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar of the souls who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness or the testimony that they had borne. Chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him, that is the dragon or Satan. They've conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. It was because of her testimony that they came to Jesus and were asking him, Over and over and over again. Please stay with us. Please stay with us. And so he did. They wanted to learn more about who he was. Isn't that the quest of everyone who comes to faith in Christ? They want to know more about who Jesus is. Now notice how it all started. It all started with a woman meeting Jesus, being told all about her life and her need. She then believed and went back to her town and told everyone there what Jesus had said and done. Then the people came to Jesus and begged him to come and stay with them so they could learn more about him. Finally, after talking with Jesus and his disciples for two days, they came to a final conclusion. And here's the conclusion. They said to the woman... Can't you see this? She must have been beaming. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. 
And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That phrase, Savior of the world, is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used by John in his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 14. We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. John, where did John get that from? He heard it from the Samaritans. And he used it. This wonderful victory in Sychar, a city of Samaria, was not the only one that Jesus offered the water of life to. One last passage, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Jesus went through Samaria again. But the outcome was very different than the one we see in John 4. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went into and who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. He's going to go through a city of Samaria. This does not say what city it was, but it I don't think it would have been Sychar. They would have received him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. We're not concerned with this Jew. We will not receive him into our town. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, now get their spirit. They said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Oh, wow. Boy, that's a jump, isn't it? What have these people done to deserve Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, they obviously deserved it, but Jesus said, you don't know what, you don't know what kind of spirit it is. He turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. The outcome of real saving faith is through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit who opens the hearts of people, not only in Israel, But in Samaria, in Sychar, and in the farthest reaches of the earth. In places where people have never once heard the gospel. He opens hearts to receive that gospel. Revelation says it's from every tribe. Every nation, every language, and every people group, every ethnicity. Let us do our part to testify of his work that he has done in our heart. You don't have to tell about what he's done in my heart or the person sitting next to you. Or I don't have to tell what he's done in my wife's heart. I can tell what he's done in my heart because that's what I know the best.
And you can do that too. And then you leave it. You just leave it. And let that stone fall where it will. And sometimes God will open people's hearts to receive it. And other times they harden themselves against it. You're not responsible for their outcome. Only for the message you give them. This is what Jesus wanted the disciples to learn. After this we see him working another of his miracles. Which we'll pick up on in two weeks time. Next week I'll be preaching different, a different from a different passage. Because uh, Mary and I and Dave and Nancy are going to the fire conference in Denver. Uh, we leave tomorrow. We'll be back on Thursday. And so I'm going to have to reach back and preach something different. Because I won't have time to expound a full passage like I have this morning. Also in FIT next week we're going to have... Uh, I'm going to show a video from a Jewish ministry that speaks about the end times. Uh, just a, it's very short, uh, and then we're going. To, I'm going to show you some pictures and things from the fire conference that we're going to this week. Uh, that'll be in fit next Sunday. Uh, after that, I think uh, the only thing left for fit is for the first two weeks of June. Paul and Trish will be here. And he'll be reporting uh, in fit during the fit for June second, June fifth, and June twelfth. He will be giving a report on the work that God is doing among the Korowai in Papua, Indonesia. So we look forward to that. And uh, that's all the announcements I have. Um, yes. Okay. Good. Uh, the update, we're going to update the pictures in the church directory in two weeks' time. And so, uh, like we did before, I guess you'll do it out back here somewhere, uh, if families get photographs or individuals get photographs to go in the directory. If your name is in the directory, there are lots of names in there that don't have pictures attached to them. And that, that helps folks uh, that, that are new, that come in. They can look and they can put a face to the name. And so uh, we encourage you to get your picture made so we can update and also to fill out an update card if there's anything different in the directory. If you're not in the directory and you want to be in the directory, it's a good time for you to get your name in there. Now, someone asked me not long ago, all right, if I put my name in the directory, can anybody see it? No, you have to sign in and then I have to, either myself or Dave has to approve uh, your entrance into the directory. Once you're in there, uh, you'll have a password to get into the directory, and uh, you know nobody can get into it unless they have uh, a password to get in that's been approved by us. So they can't just take information out of the directory on you. So that was a question someone had not long ago. Yes, I can. Thank you. All right, so. Um, Isaac Uphoven has uh, a graduation uh, party coming up. He's graduating from St. Michael Albertville High School, and he'll be pursuing trades as an electrician's apprentice. Uh, good for you. 
Uh, join the celebration on June 25th from 2 until 6. It'll be at the, the Lions, Albertville Lions Central Park in Albertville. So we'll post this on the board out there. And you're all invited to celebrate with Isaac as he graduates from high school. Congratulations, bud. Any other graduations or parties that we need to know about? Please let us know the information and we'll announce that. Okay? Very good. All right. Anything else that I'm forgetting? Uh, no Bob today. No Bob today. Dave and I uh, be gone. So. All right. I think that's it. So, uh, Dave, if you'll come back and, and have our family prayer. Uh, oh, sorry. Steve, if you'll come back, have our family prayer and close the service. All right. We've got several prayer requests to go over this morning. Uh, first one, we're going to pray for Rhonda's mom, Judy. She had emergency surgery last Tuesday and is having a difficult recovery and is still in the ICU. And I have a prayer request for salvation of family and loved ones. And uh, also prayers for the people that have experienced loss during the storms. And also praise for Kathy's successful surgery. I also want to pray for Nathan and Erica and their two daughters. They're on vacation to uh, Yellowstone till the end of the month. So they ask for safe travel and a good time there. Um, Pray for Brother John Stoltz, who's dealing with a lot of health issues. And we just want to pray for wisdom for the doctors that they know what to do to help John out and get him some healing. Safe, uh, we want to pray for safe travel for Pastor Mark and Mary and Dave and Nancy as they head to Denver for the fire conference and pray that there would be times of uh, refreshment for them. Uh, I'd also like to pray for the hearts and minds of um, that have been hardened in our country. Uh, I don't watch a lot of news, but some of them that I have has been really disturbing, especially when it comes to Roe versus Wade. Um, some of the things I hear people say and, and do are just unconsciousable from what I can see. Um, pray for the people that are battling U- Ukraine, for both Russians and uh, the people of Ukraine. Pray that God would give us eyes to see and courage to share the good news with those that he puts in our paths during our, our week. So why don't we lift all these things up to the Lord in prayer Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do listen to us, that you do care about the things that are going on in our lives, and that we can come to you directly. We don't have to go to an intermediary to to ask them to pray for us. We can come right to your throne of grace, and we're so grateful for that. Lord, we pray for Rhonda's mom um, in her recovery, Lord, that you would be with her and bring her healing and uh, help her to trust in you for a sense of peace and that you've got her life in your in her hand, in you have her life in your hands. Um, we do pray for salvation for family and, and loved ones that don't know you. Um, again, it's just such a a different time here in our country, and people are um, looking for hope and encouragement. And we just pray that you bring them bring them to you. 